Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of domestic violence and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. She didn't get why Stephen was so mad. 34-year-old Tara Lynn Grant paced back and forth in the Newark airport, listening to her husband berate her over the phone. She tried to explain it to him again. The snowstorm had delayed her flight, leaving her stranded in New Jersey, praying for a last-minute connection. She would get home that night, but it could be pretty late. Stephen was passive-aggressive as always. His voice dripped with resentment. The kids will be so disappointed. Didn't she care about spending time with them? It was a frequent jab that he employed in moments like this. Tara was tempted to remind him why she was stuck in New Jersey in the first place. Someone had to pay the bills, but she knew that wouldn't go over well, so she held her tongue. She tried a gentler touch. She loved the kids. She loved him. She knew that her job put strain on the family, and she was doing everything she could to make things feel more normal. Tara expected Stephen to launch into another bitter tirade. His silence on the other end was almost worse. At that moment, Tara heard an announcement over the loudspeaker. Her flight was about to board. She told Stephen that they could talk about it when she landed, that they would figure something out. But when the plane took off, Tara struggled to shake off her sense of impending dread. Staring out into the inky blackness of the night, she prepared herself for the worst. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we're talking about Tara Lynn Grant, a small town girl turned corporate success story. As she followed her boundless ambition, she met Stephen Grant, a man with lofty ideas and expensive tastes. Tara and Stephen hit it off right away, but soon, Tara's successes overshadowed Stephen's, leaving him resentful and desperate for control. Next week, we'll follow Stephen Grant's deadly act of retaliation and the gripping investigation that followed. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. 
I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by The Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. As a child, Tara Lynn Grant, born Tara Lynn DeStramp, didn't exactly have dreams of corporate success. Growing up in the small town of Perkins, Michigan, Tara rode horses, joined the 4-H club, and went hunting with her parents and her younger sister, Alicia. Tara's parents were well off compared to their neighbors. Mr. DeStramp had a reliable job at a local wastewater plant and made enough money to buy the family a hobby farm when Tara and Alicia were young. The girls were expected to do their fair share of chores around the farm, feeding the animals and sowing seeds. Tara helped raise farm animals for competitions at the local state fair. Her dedication even won her an award for best market hog when she was 17. Tara often pursued her passions at a competitive level. As a teenager, she competed in sharpshooting tournaments across the state of Michigan. By the time she was finishing up high school, she had amassed a tidy collection of trophies. Throughout high school, she had a job working at a shoe store and quickly became a standout salesperson there. Tara developed a strong business sense and realized that, more than anything else, this was the kind of work that she wanted to do going forward. She started fantasizing about her future success. In her senior yearbook, she wrote that she wanted to have complete financial independence, making enough money to buy whatever she wanted. Her personal dream was to live in a big house with a Jaguar parked in the garage. At school, at work, and during her many extracurricular activities, Tara had a knack for pretty much anything she tried. And by all accounts, she was humble about her natural talents and well-liked by the people around her. To her, these activities were exciting, even fun. On the surface, Tara had a perfect life. She was smart, she had great friends and a bright future ahead of her. But at home, things were very, very different. Tara's father had a short fuse and would explode into anger at the slightest inconvenience. But no matter what it was that set him off, Mr. DeStramp always found a way to blame his wife for it. She was the constant target of his verbal abuse. It was impossible for Tara and Alicia to hide from it. Their father shouted at full volume so that the girls could hear from the other room. Tara couldn't help but listen. Her father sounded so distorted, so scary. But her mother's silence was almost worse. Tara hated the way her father behaved, but she also resented her mother for taking it. Tara couldn't understand how someone could remain in such an abusive relationship, and she vowed to never make the same mistake that her mother did. Before we get into Tara's psychology, please note, 
I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. According to a 2015 study published in Child Abuse Review, it's not unusual for a child to blame their mother for tolerating domestic abuse. For a kid, mom is a protector, a caring force against all bad things in life, so it can be extremely confusing, even frustrating, for a child to see their mother being abused. Mom is supposed to be able to keep things like this from happening. Of course, abuse is never cut and dry like this. But if a child sees a continued abuse as their mother's refusal to do something, it comes across as a failure to protect not only herself, but also her children. Victim blaming completely ignores the reality of domestic abuse victims and how incredibly difficult it is to break the pattern of abuse. But as the study suggests, it can be very easy for children to fall into this thinking, and Tara was no exception. She saw her mother as an example of the kind of person she didn't want to be when she grew up. She was determined to forge her own path. At 18, Tara was ready for something new, a place that offered her new challenges. The population of Perkins didn't even break 200. For someone like Tara, this place didn't offer much in the way of upward mobility. Tara had her sights on a degree in business administration at Michigan State University. This would certainly be a change of scene for her. The school boasted over 40,000 students, a population 200 times the size of Perkins. But her parents weren't quite ready for their daughter to move so far away. They convinced Tara to enroll at a nearby community college for two years instead. There, Tara studied marketing and took to it immediately. This subject melded perfectly with her natural business sense. It was a taste of what she was hoping to study at MSU, and it only further pushed her toward that goal. So in 1991, Tara finally said goodbye to her small town life and moved to East Lansing. Michigan State University was a world away from anything that Tara had experienced up until that point. She dove headfirst into her studies and continued to show a natural talent for business. But schoolwork was only one part of Tara's college life. Apart from its curriculum, MSU was notorious for its parties, especially tailgating. Pre-gaming could start as early as 7 in the morning and last all day. By the time the game started, some students would be too wasted to walk all the way to Spartan Stadium. The social culture of partying was a massive shift for Tara. But like everything else, she took to it right away. Tara partied just as hard as she studied, going out with her friends on the weekends and tailgating for hours. It did help that Tara lived in Cedar Village Apartments. Even in the 1990s, the complex was the epicenter of the university's parties. For Tara, this place was the perfect way to get the full college experience. And by her second year at Michigan State, she was living the exciting, interesting life that she had lacked when she was back home in the Upper Peninsula. Between her studies and her vibrant social life, Tara was well on her way to the dream future that she had written about in her yearbook. But in her dreams for the future, 
she had never written anything about a boyfriend. Her ambitions had always been professional, the desire to make enough money to live a comfortable, happy life. Romance, it seemed, wasn't on the schedule for success. It would take a very special man to get Tara's attention. He'd need to be smart, passionate, and driven, just like her. And in 1993, she finally met the one. Or so she thought. Coming up, an unexpected romance sweeps Tara off her feet. The world is full of con men, fantasists, and corrupt authority figures. There are respected spiritual leaders who ask way too much of their followers, global companies with unexpected motives, and governments that value profit over all else. Luckily for us, the world is also full of people who stand up for what they believe in, even if it turns their lives upside down. I'm Pat Rodriguez, host of Whistleblowers, the new podcast series that explores the biggest, most bizarre lies in history through the eyes of those who risked absolutely everything to expose them. This season in Whistleblowers, Join us as we uncover the story of the women who brought down Hollywood's most controversial yoga guru, the doctors who believe one of the world's top surgeons used humans as his guinea pigs, and the woman who revealed Facebook's darkest secrets. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes every Tuesday starting January 18th. Follow and listen to Whistleblowers for free on Spotify. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Too Faced Cosmetics and Better Than Sex Mascara. The name literally says it all. This mascara is that good. There is a formula for anyone and everyone available in original, waterproof, and chocolate that thickens, lengthens, and curls to give you all the drama and volume. Or try the new Naturally Better Than Sex. It has a 98% naturally derived formula. Shop Too Faced Better Than Sex mascara at Sephora today. Now, back to the story. Dating was never a huge priority for 20-year-old Tara Linda Stramp. But during her second year at Michigan State University, she suddenly found herself the object of a stranger's affection. The guy also lived in Cedar Village, and Tara had noticed him at a few parties. This was Stephen Grant, a friend of a friend. He was older, an MSU dropout who was working a temporary job for a state senator. He made sure to keep the dropout part a secret, though, He wanted to seem like an interesting, mysterious man of the world. And for Tara, it worked. The few years between them made Stephen seem all the more fascinating to Tara. Stephen was certainly a partier and was more than happy to get wasted with the current students living in Cedar Village. But he carried an air of coolness that the other boys Tara's age didn't have. When Tara met Stephen, he was dating someone else, not that that seemed to matter to him. 
he was a notorious flirt, more than willing to forget his relationship for the sake of a night with a cute co-ed. Stephen treated the social world of Michigan State as nothing more than a hedonistic playground, an indulgent distraction from his professional life. He'd joke to his friends that if he was already going to hell, he might as well enjoy the trip. In other words, Stephen wasn't exactly a stand-up guy, but slowly, something clicked between him and Tara. She was charmed by Stephen's good looks and his confidence. He had a taste for the finer things in life and had lofty goals of his own. Now this was a far cry from the beer-guzzling boys Tara partied with. Stephen, for his part, was likely attracted to Tara for similar reasons. She was never a shy person and always carried an air of self-assuredness that felt infectious. Over the course of the academic year, Tara and Stephen dated on and off, never quite turning the relationship into anything serious. But even during their time apart, something always seemed to bring them back together. And in August of 1994, Stephen made his boldest move yet. It was one of their off periods. Tara was even dating someone else and it seemed to be going well. At least, she enjoyed his company enough to bring him back home with her for a family event. Tara's grandmother had passed away, and the Destramp family was gathering in the small town of Escanaba for the funeral. It promised to be a small, quiet affair. That is, until Tara got an unexpected phone call. To her surprise, it was Stephen. Without telling her, he had driven all the way up to Escanaba from Lansing. He wanted to come to the funeral if that was all right with her. Tara was stunned. She and Stephen weren't even dating. But still, here he was, showing up for her in a moment of need. It was so romantic. Trying to mask her excitement, she said that, of course, he could come. During the conversation, Tara had completely forgotten about her current boyfriend who was already there. But frankly, he didn't matter much. The moment Stephen arrived at the funeral parlor, it was like nobody else existed. This other guy was quickly sidelined, watching the chemistry unfold from the refreshment table. To Tara, Stephen's unexpected arrival was a touching display of dedication, a good sign that he was ready for something more serious but it's possible that Stephen's choice wasn't quite so well-intended. By now, love bombing is a widely understood concept. It serves as a form of emotional manipulation, where a person uses excessive attention or a grand romantic gesture as a way of keeping a new partner dependent on them. But after the recipient gets hooked on all that positive attention, a switch gets flipped. All of a sudden, the love bomber becomes uninterested, even cold, and the recipient is left floundering for any shred of affection. Jessica January Bear, director at Bear Psychology in New York, elaborated on this concept in an article for Women's Health Magazine. She explained that love bombing is tied up in the perpetuator's own need to be adored, 
and they perform this behavior so they can receive the reciprocated love and affection they need to maintain their self-worth. It's likely that Stephen's choice to surprise Tara at the funeral served himself more than it served her. He wanted to be seen as a knight in shining armor and to receive the adoration that would come from an unexpected romantic gesture. And by and large, it worked, at least on Tara. Tara's family was a different story. They invited the young man out to dinner after the service, but over the course of the meal, the Destramp family struggled to understand why Tara liked him so much. Tara's sister, Alicia, was especially suspicious. She couldn't pinpoint the feeling, but something about Stephen felt off. His life, his values, it was all so different than what Alicia was used to. Her parents felt the same way. They didn't know what to make of this young man sitting before them. Stephen, for his part, could sense that he wasn't exactly welcome. Shortly after dinner, he said farewell to Tara and drove the five plus hours back to Lansing. The Destramp family was probably happy to see him go. They may have even hoped that this moment would be nothing more than a flash in the pan romance that quickly fizzled out, but Tara was smitten. After she returned to Lansing, Tara and Steven started dating each other exclusively, and within a few months, she moved into Steven's small apartment. The pair began building a life together, but soon the relationship hit a snag. For months, Steven had bragged about how his temp job as a senator's aide would soon turn into a full-time position. And with the 1994 fall elections approaching, Steven was more hopeful than ever. The election came and went and the senator was re-elected, but Stephen was promptly fired, possibly to make way for an entirely new staff. The young man scrambled to find another aide position, but no one was hiring. But if Stephen was disappointed, he didn't spend much time wallowing. Perhaps politics wasn't the best field for him after all. His father owned and operated a machine shop in Mount Clemens, a city near Detroit. This was the closest thing to a job offer that Stephen could scrounge up. It would have to do. We don't know if Stephen asked Tara about the idea of moving or how she felt about this change of scene, but at the end of the day, it was the couple's best chance at financial stability. Tara was also struggling to find a job after graduating, so at some point between 1994 and 1995, the pair made the move to Mount Clemens. The new locale seemed to suit the couple. They made friends and enjoyed the bustle of nearby Detroit. This was especially true for Stephen. He still held the same taste for the finer things in life, and city life suited him just fine. By 1995, Tara and Stephen had established a comfortable life for themselves. Slowly but surely, Tara was getting closer to the fantasy she had dreamed of since high school. And that year, Stephen decided to take their relationship to the next level. One afternoon, Stephen took Tara to Detroit's Stately Institute of Art. They sat together on a bench, and Tara admired the building's striking marble entryway. 
The setting could not have been further from the kind of landscape that she knew as a girl. Mere steps away stood one of the original casting of Rodin's The Thinker. A little further on, a massive mobile by Alexander Calder. There Tara was, surrounded by the kind of culture she could only dream of as a child, and she was with a man who ostensibly shared her same passions, her same goals for the future. As if he was reading her mind, Stephen turned toward Tara and produced a ring. He asked her to marry him. Tara didn't have to consider her response. She said yes. In the following year, in 1996, the couple wed in a small ceremony near Tara's hometown. Once the glow of married life faded, there were some issues for the couple to deal with. Namely, Tara still needed to find a job. She was not interested in serving as a housewife, and Stephen certainly had to know that. After months of searching with no offers, Tara took inspiration from Stephen's previous work. She signed up with a temp agency. At some point in the late 1990s, Tara was given a temp assignment at the local office of Morrison Knudsen, a highly regarded engineering firm. The firm was about to be acquired by the Washington Group, a highly successful engineering and construction company that boasted tens of thousands of employees. That meant the chance for full-time employment for Tara, if she could prove her worth to the Washington Group. Tara was an extremely hard worker with a bubbly personality to boot. She quickly showed her supervisors that she was someone to keep around. Suddenly, Tara found herself as a full-time employee at a newly acquired company with the promise of upper mobility. In many ways, this was great news. Tara's new job could afford her and Stephen an even more lavish lifestyle. And now that she was a full-time employee, she was determined to climb the corporate ladder as high as she could. That vision of a glamorous life was closer than it had ever felt before, and Tara wasn't going to squander it. Given what happened later, it's not hard to imagine that Stephen might have felt conflicted about Tara's success. Only a few years before, he'd been trying to turn a temp position into a full-time job, but his dreams were dashed after his temp job fell flat. He had been made to sacrifice that path for the sake of financial security. But where he had failed, Tara was thriving with the promise of more success down the line. Stephen should have felt proud of his wife, but his positive feelings likely mixed with something else, envy. Spousal competition isn't exactly unusual. In an article for the Washington Post, Dr. Abraham Tesser explained what he refers to as the self-evaluation maintenance model. It states that in competitive relationships, a partner's success implicates you. Their success suddenly becomes your failure, which breeds resentment and bitterness. Up until this moment in the relationship, Stephen had been the breadwinner. He had been the person to initiate the move to Mount Clemens. He was the one tapping into a cultured, refined lifestyle. Stephen may have seen Tara as more of an accessory to that journey, 
a spunky sidekick who was more than willing to share his interests. But now, Tara was the one in the driver's seat. We don't know for sure how Stephen reacted to Tara's new job. For all intents and purposes, he was probably thrilled. With Tara's paycheck, the couple could move into a larger house and even start to plan a family together. Sure, maybe it was frustrating that Tara got the full-time job when he hadn't all those years ago, but he likely brushed it off, at least for now. However, in the background, that first twinge of envy started to grow, and soon, it would completely take over. Coming up, tensions build at home. Now, back to the story. By the year 1999, 26-year-old Tara Lynn Grant was well on her way to the professional success she had always dreamed of. She was at the ground floor of a fastly growing business, and Tara planned on taking full advantage of her position. Slowly but surely, Tara moved her way up the corporate ladder, collecting promotions at a dizzying pace. In 2003, she became the new systems manager. Three years later, she received her hugest promotion yet, the offer of a full-time job out of the Puerto Rico office, which would earn her $168,000 per year. But even that wasn't the end of Tara's winning streak. In tandem with this new job offer, she was also accepted into the Washington Group's LEAP program, a leadership program reserved for employees who show real potential for upper management. Her dreams of professional success had finally come true. Tara tackled her home life with the same kind of drive and determination that she utilized at work. In the midst of her corporate climb, Tara took brief periods off to have two children, Lindsay in 2000 and Ian in 2002. She worked in San Juan during the week, coming home every weekend to spend time with her family. As the children began to grow, Tara filled their schedules with activities, dancing lessons for Lindsay, hockey practice for Ian. Tara even went so far as to hire an au pair in the hopes of raising her children in a bilingual household. In 2006, Verena Dierkes, a 19-year-old German woman, moved in with the Grants. Even though she spent the majority of the week in a foreign country, no one could accuse Tara of being an uninvolved parent. She planned family outings with airtight precision, scheduling everything out in a notebook. She was an avid list maker and kept multiple logs of presents that she planned on buying for Lindsay and Ian. Some of this may have been a way for Tara to make up for her absences, but by and large, Tara was just a naturally meticulous, passionate person. By 2007, Tara had worked herself to the top of the corporate heap and had the lifestyle to prove it. It was exactly what she had dreamed, a large stately house, children, a successful career. There was just one sticking point, Stephen. While Tara's star had continued to rise, Stephen's life had gone into a period of stasis. He continued working at his father's machine shop in Detroit, barely making $16,000 a year. 
His professional goals, once so lofty, seemed to be at a standstill. Stephen's expensive taste, however, remained as refined as ever, and Tara was more than happy to indulge it. She was not stingy with her money, paying for trips and expensive dinners for her and Stephen to enjoy together. As far as we know, Stephen was happy to receive these gifts, but it wouldn't be hard to imagine that a part of him resented these acts of generosity. It's possible that Stephen felt that Tara's willingness to shower him in lavish dinners was just another way of reminding him of her financial superiority over him. Tara, after all, was the breadwinner now. Stephen didn't even really need to work his mechanic job to help provide for the family. In 2006, his yearly paycheck was less than Tara's end-of-year bonus. Male discomfort toward their successful wives is a common issue in heterosexual relationships. In a 2019 study from the University of Bath, researchers discovered that men are most comfortable when their wives contribute 40% of the total household income. But once that number trends upward, men become more uncomfortable, even stressed. The reason for this is hardly surprising. A financial expert, Farnoosh Tarabi, explained in a piece for CNBC, men often subscribe to traditional gender norms in which men are only true providers if they are the breadwinner of the relationship. With their sense of worth directly tied to their financial superiority, these men struggle to see their purpose if they are not out-earning their wives. Tarabi elaborates, saying that if the man is not fulfilling that expectation, it has the potential to damage his self-esteem and self-worth. But the complicated nature of this kind of situation doesn't end there. Tarabi also points out that these kinds of men have internalized ideas of masculinity that reject notions of vulnerability. So if a man feels inadequate in his relationship, he is not as likely to seek out therapy or other healthy ways of confronting these feelings. Stephen Grant may have not even realized that he held these traditional beliefs, but it certainly seemed like he felt emasculated by Tara's success. Suddenly, his role as provider was usurped, and his position in the family had become more domestic. He would drive Lindsay and Ian to their extracurriculars and take them to cultural activities that Tara believed would be enriching. This, too, was probably a point of resentment for Stephen. While Tara got to work in the Caribbean and dole out orders from San Juan, Stephen was the one who did the grunt work of day-to-day -day life back at home. And Stephen didn't spend much time with Tara at all, at least not until the weekends. With Tara out of the house, Stephen started to get closer with the family's German au pair, Verena. A lot closer. Stephen's resentment toward his wife was likely one reason why he began to pursue Verena. As relationship expert Susan Winter explains in a piece for Insider, resentment can be a huge driving force when a partner cheats. The less successful spouse sees their lower paycheck as a lack of power, not only in the work world, but also in the relationship. 
That person grows desperate to find something, anything to make them feel like they're in control. Stephen Grant likely felt that he lived in the shadow of Tara. That, partnered with her long periods of absence, could have fed Stephen's resentment, not only toward his own personal failures, but toward his marriage. Enter Verena, a young, beautiful woman at the beginning of adulthood. She had her whole life ahead of her and contained a kind of excitement about the future that Stephen probably lacked. She was an escape from the drabness of his domestic life. So in January of 2007, Stephen began to pursue her romantically. At first, he would send her texts while she was out with friends. He'd tell her she was cute and that he wanted to kiss her. Verena took these texts as flattering, if a little weird. She'd playfully tell him to stop, but he didn't. Soon, Stephen's declarations of lust became more pointed. One night, Stephen texted Verena from another room in the house. I want to sleep with you, the message read. Verena plainly responded back, no. But it was as if Stephen couldn't help himself. He openly talked to her about his sexual fantasies and continued to flirt with her via text. On the night of February 7th, Stephen appeared in the doorway of Verena's room. He told her good night, but suddenly he added, I love you. This night was the first time that their affair became physical. Verena invited him into the room where she and Stephen cuddled for a while in her bed. But suddenly, Stephen stood up, took Verena's hand, and led her into his bedroom. There, Stephen performed oral sex on Verena. After this encounter, Verena returned to her bedroom in a daze. This was a very exciting moment for her. Here was a handsome American man who seemed to adore her, who couldn't help himself around her. The matter of his wife didn't seem to bother her. She was smitten. For the rest of January and into February, Verena and Stephen appeared to keep their tryst a secret. There is no information to suggest that Tara or her children had any knowledge about the affair. But regardless, Things between Stephen and Tara were growing tense. Maybe Tara sensed a change that something was wrong. Or maybe she was losing the spark that once ignited their relationship. Tara had been attracted to Stephen's confidence. Here at last was someone who could match her drive to succeed. And now he was on autopilot. No clear goals no interest in professional success. And Stephen, for his part, was growing more and more bitter toward Tara by the day. Now that he had a new woman in his life, the unpleasantness of his marriage was even more pronounced. He started to look forward to the days when Tara was out of town, when he and Verena had the house to themselves. It probably didn't help that Valentine's Day was swiftly approaching, Stephen didn't seem to have anything planned, at least not for his wife. But Tara was another story. Ever the planner, 
she had already put into motion a secret surprise gift for Stephen to make up for all the time she had spent away from home. She had purchased a trip for just the two of them to go to Napa Valley later that year, where they could enjoy expensive wines and stay at a lavish hotel. She had even written a letter to Stephen, apologizing for not making him feel as loved as he deserved. She wrote that she was sorry for keeping him at a distance when he was the one person who has fully committed to loving me unconditionally. Hopefully, she thought, this would make a difference. Things had been tense between her and Stephen. She certainly understood why he might be stressed. Handling two kids alone with only the au pair to help, Tara knew that it was a lot to manage. She loved her job, but she didn't want it to get in the way of her life. Maybe this trip could help smooth things out. On February 9th, Tara flew home from San Juan. She wouldn't be able to stay for Valentine's Day, which was during the work week, so the weekend would have to suffice. But from the start, Tara's plan ran into snag after snag. A brutal snowstorm hit Detroit, stranding Tara in Newark as she waited for a connecting flight to Michigan. She called Stephen to tell him the news, but from the jump, he was frosty. In a bitter voice, he reminded her that the kids would miss her and that she was never home to see them anyway. Tara tried to explain the situation again. There was nothing she could do about a snowstorm, but she'd still make it home that night, even if it was late. Stephen responded with icy silence. He was taking it so personally, she thought. Couldn't he see how hard she was working to provide for him, for the kids? But Tara knew Stephen wouldn't understand. He was already too mad. Eventually, Tara managed to board a late flight to Detroit, calling Stephen again when she was on her way home from the airport. The conversation was just as bad as before, if not worse. Tara grew exhausted, shouting back at Stephen to cut her some slack. Couldn't he see just how hard she was trying? But Stephen wasn't interested in any of that. Tara drove home through the snow as these tense conversations swirled in her mind. Already, the weekend was shaping up to be nothing like the few days of fun that she was hoping to have. Maybe talking about it in person would make a difference. Maybe he would finally get it. She had no idea how wrong she was. A litany of horrors awaited her, just inside the front door. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back next time with part two of the murder of Tara Lynn Grant. With tensions building, Stephen lashes out against Tara. This one moment would launch Stephen into a hell of his own making. For more information on Tara Lynn Grant, amongst the many sources we used, we found Blood in the Snow by Tom Henderson extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. 
Sound design by Scott Stronick. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Georgia Hampton, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Hobbs.